Hey, this is Matt. And this is Lara. Today we had with us Tom Garza and Seva Novgorodsev. Well, there's actually very little difference between normal life and the quarantine <laughs> because we are in the middle of nowhere. Lara, what did we talk about? What didn't we talk about? We talked about anecdote, we talked about coronavirus, we talked about films. I think we covered the full gamut. Yeah, I think we did. And uh, we talked about Seva's current activities and kind of the way that this coronavirus is changing our views of history and the kind of things that we're going to have to say to our kids and grandkids. So we think you'll enjoy it. Take a listen. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hey there, listeners. I am here with Tom Garza. Lara, my co-host, and Seva Novgorodsev. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. First off, I just kind of wanted to ask, how is your quarantine going? And how are you occupying yourself uh, musically during this time? Well, there's actually very little difference between normal life and the quarantine <laughs> because we are in the middle of nowhere up in the mountains at, uh, what, uh, four and a half thousand feet. So the only inconvenience is that when you go shopping to town, you have to stop at the police, uh, whatever, checkpoint and explain to them that you live in the in the mountain um, lake area, um, Smolensky Yezera, and then you're going uh, shopping for food, um, which is one of those regulations that they understand. Right. But other than that, and obviously obligation to wear the mask in public places, which I don't particularly like, uh, there is no other inconveniences. So no difference, really. And so are you, does, does that mean that you're getting to play a lot of music and listen to more music than you normally would? Or not necessarily? Well... There is a small ethnic minority in Russian called Chukcha, and there are lots of jokes about Chukcha. Uh, so Chukcha became a writer, and he joins the Union of Writers. And they ask him, uh, did you read Gorky? And he said, no, Chukcha didn't read Gorky. Did you read Dostoevsky? He said, no, I didn't read Dostoevsky. Did you read Gogol? He said, no, Chukcha didn't read Gogol. I said, but you are trying to join the Union of Writers. He said, exactly. I'm not joining the Union of Readers. Ah. <laughs> so I'm like that. Uh, well, I'm one of those musicians who I prefer to make noises rather than listen to them. And so I guess the next national question is, what, what sounds are you making? And why are you making those sounds as opposed to other ones? Well, I'm, I'm playing flute about, uh, practice about an hour a day. Uh, really, it's an old musician's habit. You need to practice, you don't even know why. It's a quest for sound that is, is never ceasing. Um, you find uh, new elements of your muscle, whatever, use. And so you just trundle on on that route without much hope and without hoping to achieve anything really. So I'm playing my flute, um, no guitar at the moment because guitar is part of my um, evening with, you know, my concert show. 
At the moment, the concert has been cancelled because of coronavirus. So my old friend flute is remaining. Speaking of your guitar, I heard you broke your third string, and there's some... it's the fourth string, and it broke uh, in the middle of the night by itself. Oh wow, that's about as as um, yeah, as, ba- as bad as a black cat. That's, that's pretty bad. bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, mystery story. Yeah. I actually started listening to your audiobook called True Gentleman, but you mention in it a daily, daily American. called Daily American. Yeah. And I was stunned that such a publication existed for, it's almost like, you know, the Americans going into Europe and saying, where's the McDonald's? And, you know, yeah. trying to live within their own culture, even when they're not in it. Yeah. Uh, were you surprised by such a publication? No, I took everything as it happened uh, for granted. Uh, that was the reality I had to accept. Not only Daily American existed, but they had a sister radio station uh, run by the, the newspaper. And they have wonderful radio journalists and DJs with the full American school of radio presenters, you know, smooth baritone, not a hiccup anywhere. They were speaking like in Niagara Fall. Uh, it's an incessant uh, sort of flow of, of water, of, of words. Uh, so that was it, yeah. Um, I have a question. In, you know, even just now and in your audiobook, you, you, you have so many, ane- you have so many Sovietsky anecdotes. And what's always fascinated me about them, and I think Tom could maybe add something to this, is I don't understand how people remember them. How do people remember all of these anecdotes? Because there's so, so many. And it seems to me like, you know, people tell them to me and I, I can barely remember them. Well, it's like you went to a Bible classes for about 10 <laughs> or 15 years. And then, you know, you're John 12 to 15 from your Matthew 21, 13. It's, uh, it's a bit like that. You remember anecdotes or jokes by their punchlines. And the punchlines come up in your mind because of the situation that you're in. So your mind is, a, is a, does a friendly gesture as a, as a service, uh, suggesting that you tell this or that joke. An anecdote for every occasion, basically. More or less, yes. <laughs> the difficulty when I emigrated was that not many jokes are actually translatable because of the context, because of the, all the circumstances that surround the joke. So I had to reprofile myself in a way um, to weed the jokes that were not good for the Western countries and just to leave those that, that work. There was a story. I was once visiting a famous English actress and her husband, uh, he was Jack Rosenthal, and she was uh, Maureen Lipman, a comedy actress. And because they were Jewish and I'm half Jewish, they sort of were, you know, hoping for some sort of Jewish unification. And they asked me in the middle of the evening, um, could you care to tell us a, a Russian Jewish joke? And I told them a joke that was translatable, and I thought it was funny. It's the circus performance, and the announcer comes to the to the ring and says, "And now, a death-defying trick: a human Jew 
<laughs> no, I thought it was funny because being a Jew in Russia was pretty dangerous. But I was never invited to Lipman uh, household ever again. And that was my last visit to them. Because with their kind of liberal upbringing, they couldn't see the dark side of the humor. Oh, man, that that's unbelievable. I, a lot of those jokes are just so hard for Americans to kind of understand. It seems to me like that whole culture, though, of these anecdotes, these jokes is going away. I mean, I don't know anybody like my age who expresses themselves that way. And it's I feel like I, th- I feel like people are going to miss it. You know, people, you know, of our generation like have a joke, there's there's those people who have a joke ready for every situation kind of thing? Well, I, I treat my jokes very selectively because there's a lot of rubbish. There are tens and tens of thousands of jokes which there's no point remembering because they don't work. But the best one you do remember because they reflect a snippet of life, a piece of, you know, like a crystal. Um, but, um, and... Obviously, political jokes are an act of desperation because if you cannot express yourself in any other way, if the society is not free enough for you to be an integrated human being with your own political views and the ones that you can discuss with the others, so you obviously refer to something that uh, you can repeat in your own kitchen or uh, in the company of your close friends. But I must say that the political jokes are coming back because of the repressive uh, situation in Russia. They are not as widespread yet, but who knows what may happen. Yeah, I would I would agree with that as well. Just simply because with the internet, like dark humor, self-deprecating humor, you see that in the memes, you see that on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah, if anything, now there's a new breeding ground for for the kind of humor that builds off anecdote. I think it's good for the the soul because people can see themselves um, in a different light, and also the idea of self-criticism and self-demeaning humor is in human civilization is relatively new thing. I think self-criticism was invented in the later stages of the Roman Empire, and it was not known before that, because me and I was the whole universe. You couldn't see yourself from the different angle, you know, from the outside. So it takes an imagination and uh, a certain cultural width and breadth and um, so I think it's a good thing. Matt, I was going to say to a question you'd ask a, a while back, uh, it was always a bit of a challenge in teaching Russian to Americans, especially, say, in the last, certainly in the last 20 years, to get them to understand the the, the gravity of of the, the kind of sponta- seemingly spontaneous or extemporaneous longer bits of speech that would come out of things like from school age, for most Russians, certainly of my generation, memorized poetry, which any Russian could do, was at the drop of a hat, be able to recite not just a few lines, but entire stanzas of of, of Pushkin, of, of Tutsiev, of Fiat, of, of Masternak, any, any number of poets, to be able to give a good toast, and by that I mean 
a five to 20 minute exegesis on what was happening around the table and to tell the amazingly good anecdote with a particularly important punchline to it. To be able to do those extended bits of speech are, are an art that Americans rarely master themselves in their native language, certainly have to learn in Russian in their, in their second or third language, and which I'm afraid is, as, as uh, uh, both you and Sieva alluded to, somewhat dying out both with the millennial generation and, and definitely with Gen Z. But Lera, you're quite right. I've noticed in my own surfing of the internet, especially uh, looking at my messages from friends, both in the DMs that they send me, but especially on Instagram, the, the quick, short anecdote is definitely on the comeback. There's definitely a sense that a quick one or two liner is the way to go now. Um, and Seva, you uh, uh, referred to this a moment ago, is I think that actually the uh, social media in general is bringing back this idea of a community of speakers that want to be entertained and uh, amused by these kinds of stories again. So I'm hoping that Gen Z finds the, the, the joy again in, in the uh, older generation's ability to tell a good story. Yeah, what you just said pinpoints the problem that all you guys have to deal with. I don't know how you teach uh, Russian language and culture to your American students because you have to break through a wall of considerable massiveness before you actually bring to them the reality. <laughs> I think the universal remedy for this is to send them to Voronezh for a couple of years <laughs> and they will come back transformed. Well, one, one piece that we do use is this book called Din Bez Vranya, and it's about a Soviet person who tries to go through a single day without lying one time. <laughs> and this book actually contains, I think it's a really good start to, to that process because it includes anecdote and it includes all this humor about uh, life uh, in Russia, a lot of which is quite honestly probably still um, re relevant uh, to, to today. And I definitely think that um, the best chance for the this kind of rich anecdote uh, culture to live on is through memes, is through meme culture. Yeah. And I think I definitely um, see that. You should send a copy of that book to our president, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I should, yes. He would... Um, well, his untruths are quite sincere, I find. <laughs> right, right. There's a difference there. Well said, well said. He, he really believes what he's saying. This question of lying and saying untruths does exist in every country, and untruths are different. In Russia, I think they might, might be deeper, and American untruths are smoother, um, more kind of uh, civilized, if you like, but uh, they are as untrue as they are anyway. So they're just different cultural context. And, what I always noticed that uh, American young students coming to Russia cannot find their feet on the ground because they are not used to constant petty lying and pretense that the Russian life used to consist of. This double thinking and double speak, which are all Russian are used to from the very early age. So for them, it's a natural climate. 
But for American students who think straight and who say what they mean and mean what they say, it could be quite a challenge. Right. And I, I think the other thing that I came into contact with a lot in Russia was this and and I think that this is that's like what we, what a lot of Americans probably confront when they're where they're in Russia, um, where I think a lot of people get conditioned to kind of not stick out and not to just like you know express their opinions and thoughts so readily. Yeah, I think I mean I think you've hit that exactly right, Matt. I mean, there's again I, I hate to always keep sounding in this kind of okay boomer world of, of sounding like the old generation and the new generation. Sorry, Lara. <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot from my students all the time. When I start pontificating, they always give me a good okay boomer and I I reel it back a bit. So harsh. <laughs> I agree. If, if, if nothing else, they're truthful. What can I say? <laughs> but but what's what's um what's so funny in that in the sense of funny, uh interesting way, is at that break of Soviet and post-Soviet was the difference between the world where getting the news every day came in the form of a newspaper that was actually called Pravda, that was actually called the truth. And I think that's that gave such a an incredible kind of a, a, a frame in which to view what is the real truth. There was a wonderful kind of reflection back in the world of of, um, of Bulgakov and Master Margarita of what is real truth, what is the truth, almost in the Grand Inquisitor Dostoevsky and asking of And then the sort of pap, the the just bits and pieces of, of, of party line nonsense that one would read in the paper that came, called itself the truth, Pravda. And as a result, there was an interesting, in my view at least, from the Western perspective, an interesting um, valorization of what really was true when you heard it and you knew it was really istina, the truth. And then this constant babble of, yes, and our um, uh, our harvest is 10 times greater than it was last year. And yes, we're producing more steel than ever before. And the West is as corrupt as ever. And that was the problem that we just didn't, we didn't pay any attention to. When that organization all fell apart, there now is for your generation, for the millennial, and certainly for Gen Z now, a very different kind of reevaluation of truth. And I think a lot of how your generation in Russia ultimately is going to come down to determining what really is Istina. It's going to be as much as they're willing to listen to people like Stiava, it's going to require them to hear what did the previous generation have to say about what really is worth listening to, how does one discern what's the truth, and what's just the noise that you hear out there from the many, many bits of the media that come at us every day. It's a question, I think, of national psychology. Yes. Uh, the great lying became uh, a government policy, I think, with Stalin in sort of mid-1920s, when he came to power after Lenin's death. And Stalin, as you know, was a career bandit. He was a mafiosi. So for him, lying and manipulating was as natural as anything. And he manipulated and... Uh, outwitted the whole communist party of the older generation. So he created 
a series of uh, myths that the Russian people in general were very comfortable living with. Uh, you have to remember that Stalin lived for seven years in a peasant hut with the family of uh, Siberian peasants in, um, uh, just remember the place. And so he was proudly um, declaring on more than one occasion that he understands Russian people better than anyone else. So he knew what kind of truths the great unwashed peasantry wanted. They wanted a sense of national pride at whatever costs, and therefore they didn't count their dead during the war. All they needed is one grand victory, which could be lived from generation through, uh, from one generation to another, which is what is happening now, because the idea of their victory in the Second World War, um, they obviously conveniently forget the efforts of the British, of the French, of the Americans, and theater of war in Africa and in, uh, in, in the East, etc. They see the war story ex only happening on their territory and, and in Europe later. So that um, slice and that part of the population that wants to live in, in the legend, in the myth, is still there. And they are uh, the people, the, the ubiquitous 85% who allegedly support Putin because Putin uh, knowingly uh, develops and fans up all those legends, the alleged greatness of the Russian people, uh, the victory in the war, etc., etc. Because that allows him not to concentrate on the shortcomings uh, on the falling economy, of the ruined science, of the bad situation in, in healthcare, a questionable situation in education, etc., and um, generally lowering living standards of, of the whole Russia. So, in a way, that Stalin's tradition is alive. It is maybe not as huge as it used to be, but it's still there. Siv, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about True Gentleman. What was your primary motivation for kind of starting this audiobook? I was uh, writing it for nearly two years, and I'm stuck on the page 251 because uh, any writer occasionally feels revulsion to the writing process. So I'm left with the chunk of, of, of that prose and what to do with it. And because recording an audiobook, a form that is readily acceptable by the Facebook uh, readers, because they prefer to listen to it rather than to read, that allows them to play it in the car or when they're lounging on the sofa, etc., etc. So I noticed that it is successful. And also uh, the Severu Webmaster organized maybe three years ago, a little web store. So people can buy it paying whatever price they want. We, we publish a recommended price, but they then we say, you know, you play whatever you want. You can play, pay one cent or 
thousand dollars or whatever. So that makes it convenient for me. So modus vivendi is uh, quite operable. So I record the audiobooks, I find and mix the music, bits of music, etc., etc. And so it goes. Actually, I'm trying to create uh, what is known in chess a side note, which is the lack of time. You have to finish the, 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 the game and the very little time is left. I'm trying to create a pressure for myself to finish the blasted thing um, mm-hmm. at the right another 100 pages. And I wanted to ask about the, the title, um, True Gentleman, Nastayashi Gentleman. And I don't know, maybe Tom has some thoughts about this, but I was wondering what to you is a true gentleman and what what qualities do you have that make you that? Because I've seen right. the photos of you in the, in the top hat, but that doesn't make you a true gentleman just wearing no, a top no. hat. If you uh, have a look at the cover, the book Voyage is uh, highlighted. And it's uh, uh, the Yah is standing proudly saying, this is me, you know, I am the true gentleman. But in fact, the first epigraph in the book is going to be uh, uh, an expression, I think, ascribed to Bernard Shaw, that the true gentleman is someone who can play a saxophone but never does it, (laughs) 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 which is me. I mean, it's all self-deprecation, not easy to understand in Russia and probably either not in the United States. But uh, the top hat refers to me being ennobled to maybe a first step, you know, it's a lower lower step of the of the noble ladder. In 2005, I was in Buckingham Palace receiving the MBE member of the British Empire, Silver Cross from Her Majesty the Queen. So I regard this as being kind of move, moving up the the, the ennoblement um, staircase, which uh, makes me, in uh, Russian terms, a gentleman, because uh, in the whole history of Russia, there are only two or three people who got this award. I think I've always liked the best, um, the Oscar Wilde formulation, which is that a gentleman is somebody who never offends anybody, not on purpose, right? <laughs> so they only, they, only, they only offend people intentionally. Right. Um, you're, you've actually gone back to the original. I mean, if you you, you take it even, even just slightly pre-Oscar Wilde, it's Bo Brummel, right, who innovates the particular dress code for the new the new newly coined term dandy of Britain um, that Wilde uh, Im- not only embodies but in a sense kind of reimagines and creates the, the figure that, as you said, Matt, very very astutely. Yeah. And we keep we keep in our heads even to present day. But what I, what's what I love and what I think is very relevant to Sieva's book, I can't wait to read it. I will absolutely buy buy a copy before it's even on Amazon. I'll find a way to do that. Um, is that the, there is a wonderful? Well, I'm using the term probably ironically here, or at least sarcastically, um, uh, tension between the term gentleman and class, uh, which which I've always had a problem with. And Bo, Bo Brummel would have would have probably uh, certainly smirked at if not shirked away from saying that it's one doesn't have to be a person of gentleman as it were of class to be able to be a gentleman that it's not a matter that of what you have in your pocket 
but rather what you have both in your heart and between your ears. Um, exactly. How you dress is how you dress is um, a reflection of who you, how you want to present yourself, not mm. what you can afford, not how you want to present yourself to others so that they appreciate your class, but rather right. how they appreciate the good manner and the good, uh, the kind of bon vivant that that uh, both both Bob Rummel and Oscar Wilde, in my personal opinion, right. embodied. It's a pity in the in the U.S. Uh, and I say this as having been repeatedly, now at, at age 61, I don't give a damn, uh, but <laughs> repeatedly, certainly as an assistant professor, derided because of wearing ties when I taught my classes, which I still do to present day, that I must obviously be some kind of right-wing, very conservative, incredibly somehow old-school moneyed person. And uh, none of those things could be further from the truth. I just happen to like to dress. Uh, and I often dress, actually, for my students. I dress so that them, uh, they have to stare at me for 50 or 75 minutes at a time. I don't want them staring at some schlump, so I try at least to give right. them something amusing to look at. Be gentle with them and show them the noble <laughs> side of your character. And they will eventually understand why you're wearing a tie. Another reason to, to write about this, it's not a problem. But it's the situation where all the nobility of the old school were completely destroyed in Russia. And the very idea of noble behavior was under the carpet or was completely non-existent for many, many years. And in my small way, I'm trying to my, through my behavior, through my comments in the Facebook and essentially through the way I react to hostile comments to show them that there's another way. Also, the Russian idea of being a noble is uh, as someone who is essentially fat and obnoxious and uh, who thinks that he is the bee's knees. And what I'm trying to show is that uh, a person of mixed race who would have no hope in hell to be ennobled in the Tsarist Russia, is someone is showing them the way that there is another, you know, modus vivendi, another way to behave and another way to treat each other. Bravo, bravo. Seva, I know that you've got a new project going on that has to do with Ukraine and TV in Ukraine. Could you tell us about that project? Uh, Boris Grebenshikov, the famous Russian rock star, was playing a gig in India, in Goa. And it has been frequented by Russians, especially the Russians who have a little bit of disposable income. Um, they probably rent out their Moscow flat and they go to Goa to winter. There's a huge beach that goes on for miles and miles, um, Arambol. And they have their cultural center organized by local activists under the open skies, you know, beneath the palms. So Boris was playing a gig there. And after the gig, they asked him, now, Boris, who can we possibly invite here? Not the huge band, but probably an individual. And he said, well, you invite Seva, he'll tell you something. And they said, told me that uh, if a guru answers immediately without thinking about what he should answer, that is like a prophecy. We should listen to him. 
So they invited me to Goa, and that was the beginning of that my little concert show. And I did a tour of Germany, this, that, now the Russia, Ukraine, and in Ukraine there are a couple of um, old school rock musicians. Um, they came to uh, Odessa, especially to meet me after the show. For some reason, they were following me in Facebook, and they thought I could be uh, television material. So the first program we did a year ago for the Easter, we traveled the uh, U- Ukrainian churches and monasteries in the west of Ukraine, and we saw uh, we were seeing really saintly people. I mean, such depth of belief and such heroic deeds that they do. They take on completely hopeless, you know, fragments of young people with cerebral paralysis and this and that the other, and they care for them with such love and devotion. I mean, I couldn't keep my tears. Very, very touching. So after the the program came, went out. Um, the the channel the television channel said okay that's that's good but it's too expensive for us and we were toying and froing and finally we decided on a format that is cheap uh, it's a two hour talk show called people uh, and uh, we did an hour on air and uh, from Sunday <clears throat> onwards we we go for two hours live with obviously inclusions and uh, little bits from here and there. And how long do you anticipate that the the program will run? Like, will you do multiple episodes, or not for long? Because television is a fickle thing. Uh, once you appear, and once you told your life story, no one is interested in you anymore. You are an old material. So, if it lasts for six months, like we're planning, that will be good. I mean, the other thing I wanted to ask you about Seva is I recently uh, talked with, and actually Tom as well. We talked with Artemi Troitsky about several things, including uh, the the film uh, Lieta, which you are in. Which, by the way, I noticed you immediately when I saw you. I went, "Oh my gosh, that's that's Seva!" And you said something like, "Right, the, the, he's buying the coffee cup from you." Yeah. And um, and so I do want to ask you what 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 is your opinion, kind of, on the film? Uh, having seen it as a viewer, do did you enjoy the film, and do you have a, a particular opinion or thought about it? Well, rather than uh, voicing my opinion on the film, which I think is is well made, I wouldn't watch it because I don't like this uh, subdued atmosphere of semi-ruined Leningrad. I don't enjoy that kind of stuff, and I also don't like the youth culture, which is soaked with hopelessness and uh, there is no way out of this oppressive situation they find themselves in. Mid-80s, I think, I got a phone call from two young men who came to London from Rostov, Rostov-on-Don, and we agreed to meet in London Camden Market. So I came on my uh, push bike, as I normally did in those years, and we spent maybe a couple of hours talking. They were recording it on video and audio, before we parted company, they said, can you give us an advice in life? You know, what is most important? And I said, you should eat good food and travel. Solid advice. One of those men was Kirill Serebrnikov, a young Ah. Kirill Serebrnikov, 
who many, many years later remembered me and as a homage to that meeting, wrote me in into the script because <laughs> there was no such part as, a, as an old collector. I was trying to act my scene, you know, in a deeper level. And he said, Seva, no pregnant pauses, uh, please. This is not Mkhat. This is just a little film. The rest is history. It's interesting because I think one of the, uh, not simply in terms of, you know, the academic sense of teaching courses in Russian youth culture and things like that, but, but in the much more just simply hu humanistic way of viewing the world we live in, especially the more, the smaller the world gets, the more globalized and uh, uh, interconnected it becomes via internet and so forth, that films like Lieta, it's almost to me irrelevant how artistically significant they are, almost. I say, I, I, I still have my own opinion about whether it's a good film or a bad film, but nonetheless, and this is something where Art, Artemy Troitsky and I kind of diverge, I think they're really important films to put out, no matter what their quality is. Whether you're looking at the film about the doors, uh, we were look, talking about the Freddie Mercury film. I see a little silhouette of a I'm thinking more for my generation, something like uh, the Sid and Nancy movie for the uh, uh, for the punk rock scene in the U.S., the U.S. side of punk rock, which was quite different from the British and German side. What I'm getting at is that these 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 films aren't simply biopics. Vieta um, is not simply a film about Victor Tso. It's that, and that's terrific. And you like it, you hate it. That's a matter of your taste and of the director's ability to convey that meaning. But what's important is that for the for generations, whether you lived through it, as, as Sieva and I did, uh, the 1980s in, in Leningrad, or whether you're trying to figure out what's going on in 2020s Putin's Russia, it's so important to know what the take was on those other periods of time. And music is such a great way of getting at it, whether you're looking at punk rock in the New York scene, or whether you're looking at the Leningradsky rock loop uh, and Victor Tsoi and Kino, or whether you're looking at the, uh, I thought was a quite terrible film, the Spicy the film of Wysotsky. Nonetheless, it was an important film about that last year of Wysotsky's life to understand yeah. what the hell was going on in the Soviet Union in 1979. So I, I just really love these biopics being part of the cultural fabric of what especially your generation, Matt and Lera, what you learn about um, our generation. I think when the one generation is gone and all the emotional associations uh, are gone, then the next generation finds it hard to understand what were the dads crazy about. That's right, that's right. Uh, there's a poet called Garik uh, Guberman. He writes uh, short poems of four lines. And in Russian, there's a, a lovely uh, four-liner. Когда врагов утешат слухом, что я закопан в тесном склепе, кто-кто поверит ста старухам, что я бывал великолепен? Здорово. You know. So he once was a, a great lover and hundred old women may attest to that, but who bloody cares when he is dead? <laughs>
I think this is a really interesting idea that those films are kind of, you know, needed, you know, at least to just to show the pe- the current people what that atmosphere was like, because it makes me think about the films that are going to be shot about this period. And it's, and it's so hard to me for me to imagine those films to be, to, to be honest, but, but did, did either of you, could you, did you like when you were, you know, you know, in the 1970s or 1980s for both, both of you guys, did you imagine films being made about the, the era that you were in? Did you like already kind of think about how this would be shot and, you know, um, the art of how this would be done or anything like that or not necessarily? Not necessarily, but I know from past experience that whatever the previous generation has created, it would find its way into books and films because uh, people want to express it even un- untruthfully. What I can say, guys, that you are in a very important historical position because as um, Russia going harder and harder and the KGB mentality is spreading wider and wider, then US and Russia are involved in a kind of poker game. And you probably are among the very few specialists who can read the poker face of the player opposite and explain the real meaning of words and emotional essence that is put in those words taking into context the history, the culture, the dark corners of the soul of the, of, of the Russian people, etc., etc., etc. Because there is no experts who can easily translate one into another. It's rather like my collection of jokes. <laughs> well, that's very flattering, Steva. Thank you. And I, um, yeah, I definitely will start using that... Uh, analogy more that I'm a, 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 a poker shark who's trying to understand uh, the, the table of international affairs. Matt, I'd, I'd love to just kind of just chime in only because I think uh, I'm, I'm so buoyed by what, what Sieva said because I'm remembering back to so what, what, were, what was going on in the, you know, the end of the 60s, into the 70s, even the beginning of the 80s. Of, uh, I think what I'd like to say more generally is it's very difficult. And now I'm, I'm, I'm at a point where I think I can reflect back and say with, with, with confidence and accuracy, it's very difficult when you're living in a particular period to possibly even imagine, first, what is important about the time you're living in. And secondly, if it is important, how is it going to be transferred and remembered for the next and subsequent generations? It's a really tough thing to do. If I think even about right now in 2020, what are we going to do when we talk about this whole coronavirus period and the period we were all quarantined and the the, the graduation that didn't happen and and so on and so forth, right? So I'm remembering back, uh, I'll give you just one short anecdote of when I think I was most befuddled by it. 1980 was my... Uh, my senior year in college, and at the very beginning of the year in January, Vladimir Vysotsky dies. And I thought the world had ended. And the only thing worse than my feeling of Vysotsky's death resonating in the U.S. was was my uh, Russian instructor, George Pahomov at that time, who was so crushed by the news of, of Wisotsky's death that we couldn't have class, couldn't teach. He was so 
just ripped by this this news. And really, I will never forget him coming in to tell us that we couldn't have it. We were taking a course uh, on Russian uh, th drama, theater. He he's, was a wonderful specialist in uh, the, the stage in Russia. And he said, I just can't do it. He said, part of my life has gone out with his death. And later that same year, damn it, if, if John Lennon wasn't shot. And so it was one of these double whammy years where I got it from the Soviet side, I got it from the, the US side. The two of my, my true idols died at the same, in a, the same year. And the sense that part of your kind of cultural um, compass is gone. I thought at the time, we'll never be able to reconstruct how this happened and what it meant. No one will be able to give us that real sense of what it was like to lose people like this. And yet we have, we've done that. And it's to their tribute, but it's more importantly in a funny way to our tribute. It's to our credit that we're able somehow generate, or not generations, but decades later to articulate what it was that was so important to the various uh, individuals and years of these, uh, these wonderful artists' lives. I hope we can keep doing that. And that yes. it'll, it'll be your generation that's gonna be telling us how fabulous you know, uh, the performers of the 2020s really were. Well, I see human culture in geological terms. It is stratified and each generation leaves its layer of uh, cultural residues. There will be people who dig it up eventually. <laughs> there will be cultural archaeologists. So it is not all lost, but it will be retrieved in very small pieces and probably misinterpreted. So, <laughs> used to that. And on that note, um, I think we're kind of running close to the end of our time. Um, Lair, did you have anything you wanted to add? Or I mean, I think I wanted to add my two cents of just, you know, how we are imagining this large crisis that we're in and, and imagining how it's going to look 10 years from now. And, you know, we're in the middle of the story. And we don't know how it ends yet. And it's hard to visualize the end of a story until you've lived it. So I think, you know, we are only just going to have to see. I'll see you in 15 years when we start watching the movies about the uh, coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> that was beautifully said, actually, because you're 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 not just living it. And I'm, by you, I mean, especially your, your generation, you, Matvier, um, uh, those of you, you're you're telling the story. You're the ones who are who are who are, in a sense, crafting this narrative of how well or how badly we lived through these horrific days. I'm watching you as I teach my classes, especially this, the uh, synchronous ones. Um, I, I, can get, I can give my lecture into, into Zoom at any time. It's, it's a stretch for me only because I'm a Leo and I like to get that immediate feedback and I miss that. But that notwithstanding, that I still just give the same lecture I've been giving for some, not the same one, but a, but a variation of the same lecture for the last 20, 30 years. But your experience is fresh, it's new. How you respond to what's happening right now is what I'm interested in. And what I think the next generation is gonna be interested in is gonna to be to hear how you tell the story of how you got through this. Yeah, and I think I think with stories, the climax is the, one of the biggest formulating parts of the entire plot. And who knows if we've seen that climax yet? Are we living it now? Is it still coming? Has it passed? There's only one way to find out. That's right, well said. I think everybody should look behind the pandemic problem. I think coronavirus in evolutionary terms came about to teach us some lessons. I'm not sure which lessons they are, uh, but I'm sure 
different people will derive different, you know, um, conclusions for them. And one of them is obviously on biological terms, you have to keep your immune system in perky, in good condition. Mm -hmm. And that means way of life, the way you eat, the, your diet, uh, and, the, and the whole kind of attitude, um, which is probably is not a problem in California or in Texas, but there are a lot of problem places you would agree that people should have a new look at how they live. I think we can go off your advice, Siwa, and say, you know, right now we can eat well, and hopefully after all this is over, we can travel a lot too. So we're waiting for that moment. It will go. <laughs> Just a piece of useless advice. Um, uh, have pieces of uh, um, ginger at hand. Yeah. Because if you chew a little bit of ginger, it gives you a three to four hour protection from coronavirus. Is so it? if you have a pocket <laughs> full of pieces of ginger and you don't forget to chew them every now and then, you'll be okay. Have ginger will eventually travel. Home, home remedies, a very Russian classic for sure. Well, you, it's, you, it's, it's not the whole still. I heard it from a, a good authority, a chap who runs the center, a Russian academic. Uh, yeah. who runs the center and treats uh, COVID-19 COVID patients. Fascinating. Tom and Seva, thank you guys for uh, joining us. And we wish you the best of luck uh, during this difficult time. And obviously, здоровья вам. No, stay healthy, stay safe. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University